They made you? Created you like they did the other robots? No. The Masters only dreamed of me. It was my poor, stunted Derivatrons who saw in me something that the Masters of Luxor had never foreseen. The end of their slavery to flesh and blood. The Derivatrons knew the Masters' minds, and they made me. The perfect machine, made by other machines. The one made not to serve. Welcome to Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. In this episode, we talk about the story that we almost got instead of the Daleks, the Masters of Luxor. Ooh. So what's been going on for you, Juliet? Not much. You know, busy, like everybody is these days. Um, I got adopted by a kitten two days after my birthday. <laughs> nice. So I now have a third cat. She is uh, a solid black cat, except for like seven white hairs. Hmm. And so, how do you get adopted by a kitten? Well, I went to this adoption event that a local animal shelter was holding called a Kitty Hall. And I just got to sit in a room and play with kittens and cats. And one of them fell asleep in my hand as I was holding her. Just passed right out, legs all just dripping down everywhere. And uh, the name she came with at the shelter was Banana Rama, which was not going to happen. And although I know our listeners can't see it, you could see her little head just popping yeah. up right there. I named her Esmeralda Weatherwax <laughs> from the Discworld novels. So Esme for short. Oh, okay. Very cute. Yeah. Okay. So you were actually looking because you went to an event. I, I did not feel like I had to adopt a kitten. Mm. I was there to be like, well, let's see what happens. Because it's been, you know, a year and a half since Ash died. And I was curious to see if maybe I could bring a third cat back into the house. And it's, you know, not without its difficulties. Yeah. But uh, they're doing okay for the most part. Well, that's good. Yeah, because I'm so scared about the idea of introducing my cat to other cats because of just how dominant she is that I would be I would be worried about that. But that's good if you have cats. I mean, and since they're used to having other cats around, that probably helps also. The biggest difference is, is they're not used to a female cat. They've only mm. ever had brothers because... When Susan died, uh, Ash was the only cat that I had at the time. Ender didn't come into the house until a few months after that. So yeah, it's a little bit different, and she's currently grabbing my yarn. But she's very much a kitten. She'll be five months old this month. Oh, nice. I'm glad that you've got another uh, furry companion there, and cats are a lot of fun. And yeah, my wife gets annoyed when she's knitting with the cat, wanting her yarn. It's more mouths to feed, but I'm okay with it. Sure. And other than that, I'm still just running and knitting and working. And I started doing Darktober, that drawing challenge again, mm -hmm. even though I don't draw. <laughs> and I got to hang out with you when you came to Nashville. So that That's cool. right. We did see each other. We were at, oh crap, what was the name of that place? It was uh, 
it was it's but yeah it's like a free play bar where you can play like arcade games at the bar and game terminal game terminal thank you yes i just was like that free play bar in, in nashville you know <laughs> i had to google the name to get there but uh yeah <laughs> but yeah that place was a lot of fun i really wish that i had something like that near where i am because that was really cool. And then you didn't have the like outdoor games too. So like if you mm-hmm. want to go, you want to play some ping pong where they had shuffleboard and other things like that, you know, they got like outdoor games that you can play too. So that was a really cool place. Yeah. I will point out that three of us did beat Ninja Turtles. I mean, That's I don't want right. to think how many quarters that would have taken in any <laughs> other place. Yeah. Oh, I remember when I was a kid taking like the five bucks and quarters and playing that game until I beat it. So yeah, that it, it does take quite a few <laughs> to get through that. <laughs> and I was terribly out of practice. So it was like, oh my God, this is way harder than I remember. But yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, not a whole lot's gone on. I mean, it's mostly just work. And other than, of course, going to... We actually went to the Land of Oz first, which was a late anniversary present because it was canceled last year. And we were, I wasn't able to take Beth, but that's her favorite movie. And so when I found out about this strange theme park in North Carolina that was devoted to the Wizard of Oz, I was like, oh, this would be like a neat thing to take her to. So we did that. And then I was like, well, we have friends in Tennessee. And even though it's not like the most direct route back, we can travel across Tennessee and then go north as our way back. So visited friends in Knoxville, visited you in Nashville as well as some of my other friends. And then we headed north and Mammoth Cave was on the way back heading north, which is the largest cave system I want to say in the world, but maybe it's just in the Americas. Either way, it's huge. It's this huge, extensive. They were talking about like it's like 400 miles of caves and they're still discovering more like branches and offshoots and stuff. And so they have lots of different tours that you can do, like depending on like your level of how much hiking you want to do and everything else. But we just did what was available. That was a fairly like low key one. It was basically just like a mile of walking. But it was a lot of up and down, you know, <laughs> it's like you say a mile. It's like, oh, yeah, a mile. That's nothing. It was like, there's a lot of up and down there. It's it's a lot of it was like something like 500 steps. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> 500 stair steps. Yeah. In addition to like ramp walking. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But it was pretty cool. I mean, it's not really my thing. But again, it's one of those things that Beth oohs and awes over. And so I'm like, I'm fine. I'm thrilled to watch her be thrilled. So that was cool, you know, and it's, it's an interesting thing to see, like the like the thing the the main point of that tour was something that they call the frozen Niagara, What it's basically not really frozen. What it is, is it's a stone formation that looks like a waterfall. Ooh. And so that's why they call it frozen, because it doesn't move, right? Like it's frozen, like, but it's basically it looks like a waterfall. And that was pretty neat. It's kind of like the end of the of the hike. You okay. get to this thing. And, and yeah, that was pretty neat. Nice. Yeah. Otherwise, just the normal work stuff I, I started a new job but it's the same company so it's not really not really that different i'm still an engineer it's just slightly different stuff so i mean i'm not gonna get into the technical <laughs> parts of that because nobody's gonna care but uh hopefully hopefully I'll, I'll have a better boss situation that's what i'm that's what i'm really going for with this so. well i hope that by the next time we record you will be able to tell me that yes everything's awesome well here's hoping So yeah, let's get started. So we're doing our third lost story here. And like I mentioned, this was originally going to be the site because they they contracted this writer, Anthony Coburn. 
he wrote An Unearthly Child, and he wrote the second story, which he originally just called The Robots, but eventually morphed into The Masters of Luxor. And they never got in a place where they were happy with the scripts. He did several rewrites and he kind of got frustrated and they kept pushing it back in the season. And that's why, if you recall, we talked about the Daleks. They talked about the fact the Daleks was actually written like in a week because Mm -hmm. they were behind on the scripts for this. And so they paid Terry Nation to write the Daleks and he just banged it out. And so it was like, great, we'll just run with this then. And of course, the history was made with that. Right. But they had intended to still make this one, but it kept getting shoved further and further back in their schedule until he just decided that there was no point anymore. And so he stopped working on it. So that's sort of like the genesis of this. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, we start out with episode one, which is called The Cannibal Flower. These names, man. They Even on the lost episodes, the names are crazy. Yeah. Right. Well, it's because they kind of describe like the Citadel is looking like a like a flower because they actually go into it like they talk about. It's like a cannibal flower. So, yeah, the doctor says that he thinks he's gotten Ian and Barbara back to their own time. And Susan is sad that they might go. And they talk about how they just came from Macedon. So even though that wasn't part of the original script, Big Finish is just trying to kind of link it back to the other lost story that they did. Mm-hmm. But then the TARDIS starts shaking and the doctor says something's pulling them down and they're coming towards this planet and they basically like make like a crash where like they're all shaken inside the TARDIS. And yeah, and so they crash into the atmosphere is what Susan says. Ian then says, well, hey, there's nothing on the scanner. And the doctor says, well, we're definitely not on Earth anymore. And when they do finally like adjust things to be able to see where they are, they're like on something that looks like the moon. It's like a barren thing with craters everywhere. And they're at the bottom of a mountain. But at the top of the mountain, there's that thing that I talked about. There's like this sort of crystal and glass building that they later describe as looking like a like kind of like a flower shape. Mm -hmm. Let's see. But the doctor says, well, we must be alone on this world because it looks dead. But Susan is like, well, something caught us and drew us off course. But the doctor says, hey, we don't know if this was actually just an accident of some kind or whether it was deliberate. But he wants to check out the building because, right. you know, doctor. he's the doctor. <laughs> right. But Barbara is immediately thinking, OK, let's not. <laughs> I mean, I trust in Barbara's instincts. Yeah. It's like nothing good has ever happened when we find a bunch of dead stuff and then we go towards the buildings on the planet. It's just, right? it's just not good. There is one really weird turn of phrase in there that I decided to like highlight, which is she says that because the world is like seems dead and then it reached out to grab them. It's like they were being fondled by a dead body. Yeah, that was a very weird phrase. I was like, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I'm like, this is a little dark for a kid's show. <laughs> but yeah, the rest of them are all like, well, no, let's see what's in the building. And so uh, she's kind of overruled. And then there's this sort of idea that's been with the show, but they never actually show in the beginning, but it was always part of like their intentions for the series was that like the TARDIS, even though it dematerializes and can go through space and time, there's also like a way to make it fly like in normal space. And so Mm -hmm. that's what happens here. The doctor like basically puts the TARDIS in like a hover mode and they're able to like fly around the building and get get a look at it. 
Yeah, that would have been fun to try to do in the, in the show. <laughs> right. We will actually see that in the series, but not for a very long time. Right. But yeah, then they see, like, because at first they're wondering if it's really a building or if it's a spaceship. But then once they're flying around, they're like, no, it's anchored into the ground. So it's definitely a building of some kind. But yeah, so as they're flying around it, like, like I said, it looks like a flower. And so it sort of opens up like a flower that's blossoming. And then there's a way inside the building. And so they decide to, oh, no, they don't decide to fly into it. It like draws them in. Right. There's a blue light that comes out. And the TARDIS is like sucked down into it. And so they're able to tell that it's a breathable atmosphere inside. But then the TARDIS lights start to go dim. And they can't see. Oh, no, they are able to see out the scanner but they don't see anything like any signs of life or anything. And so Ian and Susan decide to go out exploring while the doctor and Barbara stay behind to check on the TARDIS, which I thought was interesting pairings Mm -hmm. because we normally don't see the doctor and Barbara as a grouping and then Ian and Susan as a grouping, but it kind of makes sense in the sense that I think Ian and Susan are the more actively adventurous, whereas the doctor wants to know stuff, but he's less energetic what doctor have we been watching? I keep seeing this doctor just go running off on adventures by himself or with other people or putting them in situations where they have to do this. I don't know. I think that doctor is pretty adventurous. All right. Well, either way, he's the one that needs to check out the TARDIS. So I guess Barbara's probably trying to make sure he doesn't replace any more fluid links. That's probably what's going on. <laughs> I kind of wondered if it was adjusted that way at all after it was done up for this audio production because of the voice actors. Oh, that's true also. Yeah. Yeah, I never read. They, they did actually publish the script at one point, and I don't actually have it. So I don't, because yeah, I do know that they did make some changes to the script to adapt it for audio. They said that they f- were fairly faithful and only changed things that they like had to change, but I don't know exactly what those changes were. So it's possible. But yeah, so I mean, it's quiet. Like the building, it seems like there's not really anything going on. There's only light in one particular section. So they're like, well, let's go towards that. And so they find these doors and they go inside and it's like this elaborate dining hall. But food and drink is already set out. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. And so they're a little worried, but they're like, well, it smells like food. (laughs) There was a cute exchange, though, before they went in when they were talking about how they didn't see any people. And, you know, there were no people. Was it Susan mentions... Was it Ian mentioned sentient windows as maybe, you know, this land is inhabited by, this place is inhabited by sentient windows. Yeah. I'm like, okay, cute bit of comedy right there. Well, yeah, and I think that that's kind of nice because, like, early on, I think the show was open. I mean, it's kind of come back with the new series, but, like, as the show goes on, it does become more rooted in, like, sci-fi rules and stuff. But early on, like, this, the idea of, like, anything can happen is kind of part of the series. And so it's kind of like Ian's like, we've seen all sorts of weird stuff. So, right, you know, sentient windows, who knows? But yeah, like, this whole thing of, like, there's food set out and Susan just goes to eat it. Because Ian's kind of hesitant about the whole thing. Like, well, wait, let's check this out a bit. But yeah, Ian stops her from actually eating it and asks her if she knows the story of Hansel and Gretel. (laughs) I was actually thinking more like Hades and stuff, but that was just where my brain went. Well, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Land of the Lotus Eaters from Greek mythology. There's all sorts of stories of don't eat the food in a strange place kind of thing. But yeah, Ian mentions that for all we know, we're being fattened up for the witch's supper. 
they notice that there are 14 or there are 15 chairs, but 14 of them have sashes. Mm-hmm. And so Ian says, what's the prize for finding the 15th sash? Oh, I'll find out. Yeah, our dad joker. And so there's this gong just sitting there. So Susan's like, well, we've looked everywhere. Let's check out what happens when we do this. So she hits the gong and nothing happens. Nope. What they're basically theorizing at this point is maybe this is just like some remote automated place. You go to dock here, you land, food's put out, you eat the food, you know, you leave, you know, you tidy up, you leave, you make sure everything's set up for the next people that come. It's like a little way station. Yeah, like a way station kind of thing, which based on what they see so far, that's not a bad theory to go on. Right. But then we cut back to the doctor who's checking the fault locator. And he says, well, it's not indicating anything's wrong, but somehow we're losing power. And Barbara asks if they have like an emergency source. And the doctor says, yes, but we'll need to find the source of this drain because that's not going to last forever either. Right. So then Susan decides, well, okay, we've looked everywhere and tried everything in here. I'm going to go because there's another door across from where they entered in the dining room. So she goes in there. But Ian finds that the chair, the one at the head of the table, has a cap. It looks like there might be something underneath it. So he wants to, like, open it up on the armrest. But then Susan goes through and, you know, out the door into, like, the galley. And she's not really finding anything. There's a lot of panels and things, but it doesn't look like there's a way to open them. And suddenly, though, everything just springs to life. Cabinets open up, all these panels open up, and there are these robots with metallic clamp hands that are in there. And Susan runs out, and Ian says that he had just opened the case on the armrest, and he pressed one of the buttons. So they work out that, oh, he pressed the button. That's what made stuff happen in the galley. Okay. They gave a really good description of these robots. Mm. And I freely admit that when I first heard this description, I was like, knowing this is a lost episode and it technically is not canon, right? Right. I was like, did they just totally rip off this description of the robots from this to make the Cybermen? Because that was the exact image I was getting in my head from the description of the solid faces, the black holes for eyes, the mouth with the grates, the little antenna that come up to up here above their heads. And I'm like, because as the story goes on, I know it's obviously not the Cybermen, but it makes me wonder if they were at some, some point, you know, they had read that script that, and they were like, that's a great description. We should. And they never made it. They're like, let's go back and take that because that was really awesome. It might. Be, I mean, the, I don't know for sure. I do know that the Cybermen came more from an idea. They were looking at the idea of like all these like new surgeries that were happening, transplants that were happening, the idea of giving people like prosthetic limbs and stuff like that. And they were like, well, what would happen if you just kept doing that? And then like the idea of the Cybermen came through. But I don't know if they potentially did look through older scripts and things that they had on file also. And that helped inform what they were going to do. If nothing else, just the appearance of them, because that description was dead on what a cyber of the of these initial robots that Susan finds was Mm. dead on the Cyberman. Yeah, no, that's that's not a bad thought. So they go inside and they see that, yeah, even though the cabinets are open and everything, the robots aren't doing anything. They're just basically sitting there. Susan feels unsettled by them, but now she sees they're not moving. She's not scared. And yeah, actually, funny enough, that's where I put the description into my notes. Instead of eyes, they have two shallow indentations, narrow grills for mouths, 
wires coil from their where their ears should be and go to an antenna on the top of their head. So yeah, I I get what you're thinking with Cybermen. Ian even like goes and hits one just to see if it'll do anything, and it doesn't do anything. And Susan's like, "Well, let's just keep exploring." And Ian's like, "Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's wait for the Doctor and Barbara before we get too far." So yeah, it's kind of funny that this seemed that this would have been the second story if it had been done the way they originally. But it's like almost like Ian's learned from previous, you know, adventures. Like, yeah, let's not like split ourselves up too much. We've seen how that goes. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so the doctor's still trying to figure out what's draining the power. And that's when Barbara talks about the cannibal flower, which I think they're talking like about a Venus flytrap or something along those lines. You know, there's several different kinds of plants that are like that, that eat things that land on them. Pitcher plants are really cool. Yeah. (laughs) The doctor is shocked at the mind that would think of such a thing to like create a building that traps ships like that. He obviously doesn't get out much. Right. (laughs) And he talks about the fact that whoever built this place must be smarter than they are. And it's kind of one of those things I read an analysis of the story. And they talk about how the writer was thinking about like, well, we did cavemen and now we're going to do something where they're against technology that's even beyond what the doctor's people are. So it's sort of like you have like the sort of yin and yang of experiencing both the very beginnings and the very far future. So they decide there's nothing left they can do in the TARDIS. They need to go out and find out if there's anyone to talk to in this place. So they go out and they find Ian and Susan in the dining room. And the doctor tells them that the TARDIS is effectively dead. Oh, and he's practically crying. Right. It's impressive. Like, there's a lot of depressed emotion in that voice. Yeah. Oh, God. William Russell is so good as the doctor. I absolutely love it. But Ian points out that, look, this food is like the kind of food that we have on Earth that's meant to sustain beings like us. How does he know this unless it like looks like Earth food? I'm kind of curious. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking it probably would have looked like chicken or whatever, you know, like something that they were used to. And the robots are a humanoid shape. So they're making the assumption that whoever lives here must be at least humanoid. So we will have some sort of basis for communication or whatever. We just need to find them. Right. And so he says, well, whether this is a stop off point or whether it's a trap, we just need to go through the motions because until we do, we're not going to meet anybody. So they all sit down to eat. And Barbara mentions that the food could be poisoned. Uh, But Ian says, well, we're going to die from hunger anyway. if We don't eat it. So we might as well just try it out. I'm still with Barbara. Yeah, but yeah, and so then Susan goes to eat some, and that is the cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, maybe not the most uh, most uh, tense cliffhanger in, uh, in Doctor Who history. I don't know. We don't know if it's poisoned yet. <laughs> That's true, but I'm just saying, you know, it's Susan goes to bite a chicken leg and oh, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> what might happen? Actually, actually, what it really should be is when they come back from episode two, the food should start talking to them and be like, excuse me. (laughs) There really was something in that food. (laughs) All right. But yeah, episode two is called The Mockery of a Man. I love these episode titles. Yeah. So, yeah, they're enjoying their meal. And Ian is like, this is the best feast that I've ever had. How many feasts has he had other than like, you know, where they were just at? In Babylon. I don't know, but apparently it's a really good food. 
But yeah, Barbara wonders if the person who made all this is their host or their jailer. And again, Barbara just seems like really, really like this place is bad. It's evil. We shouldn't be here. Look, she just came off the heels of getting to see a historical icon that she is, you know, just only read about. And now she's met knowing he's going to die, watching him die, not being able to do anything about it. And now she's just like, mm-mm. Not not doing this. And I know that this was technically written before all of that. So that and they worked all this in. But I if we're going in order, I can feel where Barbara's the cynicism and the you know the all of that. I like that. No, I like that interpretation too. Because yeah, I mean, like when I'm reading this, you know, or, or not, not reading, but when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking of it in the context of just Barbara as we see her in most stories. And how she's usually portrayed. But you're right. I mean, we really should take this. I mean, it's presented to us as happening after Farewell Great Macedon. So we should take that in context of the fact that that is a hugely emotional event that she's just gone through. So, yeah, no, I I like that. But the doctor, you know, the doctor is always like, if people are smart, they must be good. That's usually his first point of view. And so he's like, you know these people they made great food they've got these robots you know maybe they're not so bad i wish i could introduce the doctor to ian malcolm from (laughs) (laughs) oh oh fanfic writers (laughs) (laughs) there you go start start writing but barbara points out well the tardis is powerless so uh that's reason enough to be scared but the doctor goes back to oh well humans are always afraid of the unknown which It's true, but this is still a pretty bad situation. And it doesn't explain why, if this was just like a way station or whatever, why they would drain the power from the ships that come there. Also, Susan screams at the drop of a hat at the unknown. Yeah. I mean, it's not just humans. That's true. But Ian's like, well, maybe it's the people who run this place that are afraid of us. And so he's trying to go back to maybe they're surprised that we're here and they don't know what to make of us. Right. And so they talk again about like, well, they do seem to have a similar intelligence. It seems to be things are laid out like the way we would. They have chairs like we do, blah, blah, blah. But then the doctor says, well, if they've taken the TARDIS's power, they should be able to put it back. So let's press the buttons and see, you know, you only pressed one of the three buttons on the chair. Let's press the other two. Of course, let's just press buttons. (laughs) Is one shiny and red? Press that one. It's like, this comes up in almost all of my favorite fiction. It comes up in the Discworld that, you know, if you put a big sign on the, you know, the button of the universe that says do not press, people would be queuing up to press it. Mm-hmm. And then in the Expanse, even Fred Johnson tells Holden at one point, he goes, it's just what you do, isn't it? You just see a bus- button and you push it. <laughs> I just feel like this is a thing. Does nobody think about this? I have been taught to fear buttons, but that is from my days <laughs> of role-playing with my friend Sean, and that has taught me to be terrified of pressing any buttons anywhere that are unfamiliar, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Role-playing trauma. I get it. Yeah. He made my character red-green colorblind once, so I wouldn't tell that a button was red. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. So, yeah. Ian is like, well, what do you think, Barbara? And Barbara's like, well... I don't like this place, but we're kind of stuck and nothing's going to happen if we don't do anything. So yeah, maybe we should press the buttons. So Susan is basically like, well, I'm curious just because building robots in a humanoid shape isn't that real, that efficient. 
like giving them wheels and stuff would be like a lot like if you're just worried about efficiency so she's like i want to see these things work to understand maybe why they made them this way mm-hmm. and so then ian presses the second button and the robots come in to the hall but they don't do anything the doctor tries talking to them but they don't respond so ian's just like okay i'll press the third button and so he presses the third button and then two new robots come in and these ones look a lot more advanced they look like where the other ones are like a bulky kind of robot with claw hands these ones have actual human type hands human type shape they say they have the proportions of a greek statue so basically very human in shape and form and that they even have but the face yeah like a face with lidded eyes full lips and a half smile but the the lips are the mouth obviously doesn't move. Right. So you think about like one of those masks, like one of those Greek masks that people put on. And usually they're very exaggerated, like either like the sad mask or the happy smiling mask. But just imagine what's just like a half smile and like a plain expression, how disturbing that would be if somebody just had a mask on like that. Oh, no, I can tell you how disturbing it would be because there's an episode with the 10th Doctor, uh, Girl in the Fireplace where they use, uh, there's these clockwork things and they have that exact like similar face mask. And that's what I was thinking of with this. No, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I've seen that one. So I know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, just just the masks on those, not the rest of it, but the faces. I was like, mm-hmm. that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. And they also have a blue stone in their foreheads with silver bands that come out from it. And so it looks like they almost have like a crown because of the way that it wraps around their heads. So one of them comes up to the doctor and says that it is a derivatron and asks if the masters of Luxor are pleased with the food and the drink. And the doctor is like, well, this is odd. They don't see us as strangers. And the doctor says, well, we're not your masters, but we did enjoy the food and the drink. And all the derivatron says is you have made us well and we serve you. It actually keeps repeating for a while. Did you enjoy the food and the drink? Mm-hmm. And it, to the point where I wasn't sure if it was creepy or annoying, but I was leaning toward creepy with how often it kept getting repeated. Well, and I mean, I think that's one of the things of this story is the idea of the creation of things that are like humans, but are not human. And sort of the idea of how we talk about the uncanny valley nowadays as one of these things, like the more similar something becomes to a person, but is clearly not a person, how much more disturbing that becomes to us. And we see that with the progression here. We have the original robots are called the Mark Ones. And then we have mm-hmm. the Derivatrons, which are like an improvement. And they're way more creepy because of the fact that they are a lot more human in their look and the way that they talk and everything. But then it's the stuff like that. Like they just keep repeating stuff until you give them the answer that they want. Or if you tell them something that they don't, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. When you tell them something that they don't understand, they basically say that we don't understand, therefore it must be false. And so you get into that sort of creepy nature of the idea of things that are so hardwired that something must be a certain way that they can't go beyond that also. That sounds like some people I know. Right, exactly. (laughs) Vaccines are not good, therefore (laughs) this data must be false. I was just thinking that. We don't understand this. Right. And then, then that's when they explain that the machines are Mark 1s. They, they, they call them Mark 1s, the, the original ones. But then when the doctor says, well, what are you going to do now? It says, cannot say. Yeah. Uh, but then it asks them if they want to rest. And Ian says, well, I'd love a bath and a change of clothes. And it says, okay, you'll get that. 
I'm just going to state right now that this was a great story to be preparing for for October for a spooky season because mm. this entire this entire story was very much a horror story in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right with that. And there's a lot of things that play into that, but we're going to get to that towards the end because we're already talking about the themes of human analogs and things that aren't human and stuff like that. But there are quite a few other things that I think. I think this story is a lot deeper than the Daleks, but I really get why they kind of didn't want to go with this as a story in the first season of Doctor Who. But yeah, we're going to get into all that. But yeah, and Barbara starts worrying. And this is great because I love these lines. Like these are the kinds of things that probably would have been cut from an actual story that had been televised, but like the speculation on stuff that goes nowhere, like Barbara wondering, are these robots that are becoming more advanced or are these people who have become machines? Again, playing into the whole Cyberman thing (laughs) in my brain. And we find out later that that's totally wrong, but that's a, like a legitimate fear of the idea of, wait, what if we've got this completely backwards and it's people who have become more robotic over time? And that is disturbing, too. I love the fact that it's Barbara and not like the doctor or Susan who thinks of that, Mm -hmm. who who goes to that possibility. I'm like, yeah, Barbara. (laughs) So, yeah, they take them to their room. It's really nice, opulent, uh, you know, baths for both the men and the women. Nice hollow echo in the bath chamber. And Mm -hmm. Ian's like, we should leave. (laughs) It's obvious that Barbara's about to strip down and jump into a bath. Yeah. They've got clothes laid out for them. And so everything's just really nice. The clothes themselves are kind of a hilarious moment (laughs) of levity in this thing with Ian wearing a knee length silver, I I think, or gray tunic and Mm -hmm. black leggings Mm -hmm. and the doctor coming out wearing his normal clothes because he's like, "Uh, I'm not wearing that. Besides, I don't have Chesterton's legs. (laughs) Yes, I love that. But yeah, and then Ian's kind of like, doctor, this idea Barbara had's kind of disturbing. Like, is it possible? And the doctor's like, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it can now happen. we're going to be like, <laughs> you know, robots can become more advanced and more like people, or you can have people and make them more robotic. It, it could go either way. He's not bothered by this, though. Mm-hmm. Ian tests the door. It's locked, of course. You know, they've been locked in here. And so Ian says, do you mind if I point out something that's so obvious it'd be laughable? And the doctor's like, well, it's not the first time. (laughs) And Ian's like, I I don't like this one bit. (laughs) But yeah, then Ian's bathed. He's in the silver tunic with the black leggings. And even better, he does say the thing about not having Chesterton's legs, but he also says he's not going to strut around like a plucked turkey. Yes. (sighs) But then another robot enters with uh, some of the Mark Ones, but it's wearing, it looks like a Derivatron, but it's wearing clothes. And his skin is gold, and on his head is a skull cap, but he has the same kind of like blue jewel that like the Derivatrons have. And he tells them that he is Proto. So you're already thinking Proto, Prototype, something's going on here. Mm-hmm. But he's mouthing the same things, like he's calling the masters of Luxor. He says, "You have made us well. We serve you." He seems to have more of a range of responses, though. Another thing that this one does, which I don't know if you got from the performances, but there's one actor who does all the different mechanical characters, so that yes. way it kind of gives it like a certain thing of yeah, they were all basically patterned on the same basic design that was then just upgraded. So I thought that that works really well. 
But the doctor keeps trying to explain we're not these masters of Luxor, but Proto keeps saying that what they say has no meaning. And so therefore it must be false. And then it mentions that Barbara and Susan have set up dangerous vibrations in its perceptor coils. And then who is it? Is it Ian or the doctor that just starts laughing? It's like, of course, they're women. Yeah, Ian's the one that does that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, but I think, I, I, again, we're, we're going into horror territory. I know. Because, I mean, aspects of this is, is like a like a Frankenstein story, too, right? And then, like, the idea of these mockeries of men and the idea of the fact that men designed these mechanical creatures but it's still sort of a male thought that goes into them and they've never seen a woman before. And then it becomes like, how do they respond to women? And again, it's that creepy, creepy way. Ian doesn't know that at this point. Oh, All I know. he hears is that these two are obviously giving off weird vibrations. And Ian's like, oh yeah, it's because they're women. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just him engaging in some, you know, he's, he's a school teacher. So he knows like how the kids would sort of snigger at that sort of thing. <laughs> Oh, the dangerous vibrations. But yeah, they mentioned to Proto that they were pulled down by this signal. And Proto's like, there is no signal. That's another thing that's unacceptable. Therefore, it must be false. And then they start recognizing, though, because of how often this goes on, that like this thing just won't accept anything that it hasn't already been programmed to accept as, as a possibility. Right. So Ian asks Proto to show them to its masters. And then Proto says that they must have come from the empire of Luxor to find out why the living men never returned. And it says that they've come in a strange ship and brought the women to confuse them. But then it goes back to the parroting of the, you have made us well and we serve you. I cannot also be the only person that was getting some Battlestar Galactic. Oh, no, yeah, no, that's another good one. Yeah, with the sort of Cylon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like tones of that in here, too. The doctor asks what he means about the living men that never return there, because that's an instant red flag. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) So, I mean, if there were living men, obviously there's dead men for comparison somewhere. Right. And then Proto says, when you're brought before the perfect one, then we'll see. And then you'll see how well you made us. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great line for a horror thing right there. <laughs> right. And then Susan also asks, and he says, they would not give up their lives. So we destroyed them. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, not not great. <laughs> Then the doctor is basically like, well, this sounds like these robots turned on their creators. And Ian is like, well, I don't want to meet this perfect one on his terms. Because Proto left after, after that last, but I didn't put that in my notes, but he left. But then they figure that they have a balcony outside of their room, and there's another balcony below them. And the window's not locked, but the door is. And so what they do is they use the curtains to improvise a rope, you know, same kind of thing you see in tons of shows. Now they did, they were like, you know, we're probably walking into a trap because they wouldn't have been so stupid as to not lock the windows. And, but they also are like, what other choice do we have? Mm -hmm. You take whatever option you've got. So they know they're being herded basically. Mm -hmm. So they go five floors down because that's the limit of what they can get. I have one question and I was thinking about this and I can't recall if it was resolved. Basically, Ian like ties one end of the sheet around like Barbara's waist and then lowers her down to the balcony below. And he does this with everyone. 
and then he goes down and then they repeat how does he go down the 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 sheet re- the sheet rope and then unhook it from up there where the the previous balcony did, did you see where i'm getting yeah i see what you're getting from that how who unhooks it for him up there so he can go and lower people down cuz they're only using like okay i'm sorry curtain one length of curtain right and they just repeat this over and over how that's a very good question he ties the knot in such a way that once he gets down he just needs to like tug on it a little bit and then it unknots and comes right back down <laughs> it's just it was so ridiculous i'm i was listening to this while running and i was just i, I actually remember thinking as i was doing a lap i'm like how does ian get down with the rope these are the questions that come up when i listen to these maybe what they do is when they get to the next floor down, they grab the curtains from that floor, tie a new rope, and lower them down to the next balcony. I don't know about that because they don't seem to talk about opening windows. They don't even talk about that. That's they true, but this part is one of the narrated parts. So, I mean, narrated parts kind of skip just to get them down to the next. I just got to ask. Yeah, I know. I, I'm, I'm just saying that's the only way I can sort of see it is they just use the curtains on each level to go down one more level. Ian has a pen light and magic curtains. There you go. That's his legacy. (laughs) So yeah, once they get down, they come out, but they hear robots coming towards them. And so they sneak into a room to get away from them. Because they can't go all the way down. Right. Because they can't go all the way down. Because after the five floors down, there's no more balconies to get down to. And so it's like, okay, this is as far down as we get. So when they hear the robots coming towards them when they're in the hallway, they go to a room, they get in. And they look down in like an operating theater kind of thing. And there's a man in the operating theater. And, th- and my question after all of this that comes later is we know that the robots become immobile when they don't have any power. How long was this man just sitting? And how are they keeping him alive? <laughs> well, they did say he was an older man. Yeah. But they also mentioned later on that they were pretty sure he must have been the more, most recent arrival or person that was caught by the the beam or the signal and i wondered that too but i also kind of just figured in my head he was scraggly and scrawny and emaciated because he hadn't been feeding properly that's true and yeah we don't know how recently the last ship had actually come but they see the robots basically put a crown with all sorts of wires coming out of it on top of the guy's head and they find out that the door is locked. Like they're trying to leave when they see all this going on, but now they're locked in this room. So again, they're being herded into looking at things. So they realize they're supposed to see this. And that's when they see another person, what they think is another man come in who has a bald head. And Susan's like, wow, he's really handsome. And <laughs> the robots attach some of the wires coming out of that crown to his body and put a crown on his head also. And so then uh, the lights dim, the crowns glow, and then there's this big flash of light. And the man that was originally there is completely gone, except for a few scraps of fabric. And the person that came in just leaves. And then the robots open the door to the viewing area where the TARDIS crew were and Proto comes in and tells them that they need to come with him and so then they're led into like this office with these double doors made of wood actual wood yeah actual wood and susan's like wow that's weird because everything else here is just metal and this is where the one that's called the perfect one is and he's the guy that they saw with the bald head that came in that susan thought was so handsome 
And he like, it makes a point of saying like he stares at Barbara for a really long time to a point that makes her uncomfortable. This is Barbara's role in this series. Unfortunately, it happens way too often. Oh, Barbara just needs a good man to pay attention to her. (laughs) So Barbara is like, who are you? And he says, well, the Drivatrons call me the perfect one. I don't serve. And he tells them that the Derivatrons made him. And when they ask a little bit more, he says, well, first, the Masters of Luxor made the Mark Ones. And this is the part that gets interesting. Because again, we're talking about the reason why you would create robots in a man's shape. And it almost seems like he's saying that they did it because they wanted to feel like they had slaves. And that's like really horrific to just because we're so used to seeing in sci-fi. Well, yeah, you got robots that look like people. I mean, that's just the thing that you do. But he says that the Mark Ones, they made them first, but they weren't intelligent enough to understand that they were enslaved. And then they made the Derivatrons because they could speak the words of like subservience, but that wouldn't satisfy them. And so then they dreamed of making a being who was just like a person that was basically equal to them in every way but one. And he tells them that, you know, the masters, though, never did build him, even though they dreamed of him, but then that the Derivatrons wanted to build because they had made the plans and everything. And so then the Derivatrons took the plans to make the one who would not serve, who would be like their master, but was also one of them. And there's so much packed into that. Yeah. Because not only is it the idea of people just creating a race of slaves because they can, it's the idea of the robots wanting to be free and to emancipate themselves to the point of creating a robot that doesn't have to obey. Again, felt very, very Cylon-y. Yeah. I mean, it's shades. I mean, it's, it's all that stuff. It's, it's like Skynet. It's like anything. You know, the idea of the machines wanting to go outside of the the bonds of what humans have put them in i really really am glad we we don't ever i'm i don't know if we're ever gonna do we ever in doctor who actually go to a planet called luxor no okay good because they're terrible people yes absolutely terrible yes but again remembering that this is made in the 1960s world war ii was not that far behind them so Anthony Coburn is writing about what the Nazi dream was. He's writing about this is what that society would be like. So the doctor, though, asked the perfect one, well, what happened to the people that were here? And the perfect one says that he had to destroy them. And the doctor asks what happens to the perfect one when he doesn't have any power. And he says that he's basically dead during those times. He can't move. He can't do anything. And so he says that that's why he wants them, because what he wants is the one thing he's lacking, which is the enduring life that organic beings have. I mean, enduring to a point. Well, it is. But I mean, again, we're dealing with this sort of idea. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of metaphysical in one way, which is kind of weird when you're dealing with the machine and the idea of like a soul. Blade Runner explores that very clearly too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Roy goes to uh, his his father, his father, his creator about. And dude's like, "What do you want?" And he's like, "I want more life." Mm-hmm. No, I and and again, yeah, I mean, it gets kind of metaphysical with that kind of aspect. But there's also the aspect of this machine has been built with 
theoretically all the emotions that a human has, but with this limitation. And just think about that. Think about if you only got to run for a few hours a day and then you could be shut off and then you'd have to just stay there until somebody decides to turn you on again. Or even worse, in this case, it's just random. Whenever a ship shows up, he's able to start moving again and start doing stuff. And just the sort of horror of this machine that doesn't really understand what life is, but wanting it because it doesn't want to keep getting shut off and just grasping at whatever straw that it can find to try to figure out, like, how do I keep myself running so that I don't have that problem anymore? It's an ongoing theme throughout sci-fi, though, like Mm -hmm. Star Trek, uh, that measure the measure of a man episode and so much of Data's arc and explores that, too. No, it is. And again, I I just really like it because, I mean, I think that I think that it's a really interesting like way of going with like the mixture of elements in this. Like we mentioned all sorts of things that sort of play on these same sort of themes. But this is a lot of those themes all packed into one story. And the fact that it was written in the 60s, I think, is kind of neat that this is this is kind of cutting edge for that time period. And just thinking about these sorts of conundrums and issues with the idea of knowing that humans are going to keep trying to make more and more sophisticated machines as time goes on and what does happen when you reach that point when you're almost at being able to just create new humans. But yeah, his basically saying that he wants enduring life. That's the cliffhanger. And then we go on to episode three, which is a light on the dead planet. So then the perfect one has drinks and basically they describe them as like sort of wafers, almost like cookies, like for them to eat brought in. And the doctor basically tells the perfect one that what he wants to do is impossible. And the perfect one just gives the same. And this is the other interesting and disturbing thing because the perfect one is supposed to be so human-like, but mm-hmm. then he still has the thing like the derivatrons do. If you tell him something he doesn't like, it becomes your words are meaningless, therefore it is false. Right. And the perfect one basically says, look, the masters of Luxor experimented on their own people. Yeah. And so it's like, why is what I'm doing which is experimenting on others and wrong because that's what they did. And and with that argument, it's like from his frame of reference, I mean, there's no way to really explain like why that's wrong because yeah, the Lux rights were awful. And he mentions that basically they're eugenicists. They have like, these are like the good people, the people who are considered to be, of a particular group or whatever. And then there's the degenerates, the ones who don't measure up and that women, they're specifically very picky about making sure that only the most genetically perfect women survive because they're the ones that produce new, you know, which is stupid from any knowledge of genetics, because obviously the male genetics play just as much of a factor as the women's genetics. But the idea of this is also like a, very uh, patriarchal society on top of being eugenicists, you know, that they only allow women of a certain standards that they have to survive. Right. And then also, though, they're also uh, against anyone who questions their way of life is also a degenerate and therefore is you know, sent away to be experimented on. And he basically says that the majority of people just do whatever they're told and the robots are the servants that do everything for them and only the masters get to decide what gets done and how things get done and stuff like that. And when Susan is like, wow, that is really messed up, the perfect one's like, well, wherever you live, people must have a way of life and they punish those who go outside of that way of life. 
And it's kind of like, okay, yeah, but <laughs> it's a little bit different than just condemning people for the way they are, you know? I mean, perfect one's not wrong about how that works sometimes. Well, I mean, that's true too, but I'm saying that even, even agreeing with the idea that all societies must have laws there's laws you know that are meant to create fairness between people and their interactions and there's things that just punish people for being who they are and one is better than the other but the perfect one is able to accept the idea that they do come from somewhere else he says that they've he's been listening to their conversations uh, and he asks them why that they've come here from wherever their own world is the doctor talks about the signal that drew them down and the perfect one is like i don't believe you there is no signal and Ian says, well, maybe it came from somewhere else on the planet. And the perfect one's like, this is the only place on the planet that has anything. Yeah, the rest of the planet is dead. Can't survive out there. And Ian is like, well, how do you know that there wasn't something here before you were created? How dare you even say that? And perfect one has no real answer for that. And Susan basically is like, well, we didn't even know this place existed. So why would we come here? So they're trying to create sort of logical arguments that there must be a signal because that's the thing that brought us. And there's no reason for us to come here. And so that's the reason. And then the perfect one starts digressing to talking about, look, I can even enjoy eating food and drinking wine. And hey, why don't you have some too? (laughs) And then he seems interested to know if either Susan or Barbara have ever given birth. (laughs) It's just, it's creepier. He is very creepy. And then he even touches, like he does like a, like a kind of like barely hesitantly touching Barbara. And Ian's like, keep your hands to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but then because Ian's getting aggressive, the perfect one basically tells them these veins on my head are like a link to an explosive in the building so that if I'm damaged in a way that I can't recover everything's going to blow up because if I can't live, then I don't care if everything goes. So yeah, that's also great. (laughs) So Ian is like, well, that's a bluff because if you want life so badly, why would you do that? And he's like, well, nobody can fix me if I'm broken. So if there's no way to ever fix me and allow me to have life, then why do I care what happens to anything else? Right. But then they realize because they did drink the food and or drink the wine and eat the food that, oh, it was drugged and they all fall asleep. I can't voice it any better than that massive sigh. Yeah. <laughs> and so then they're taken away by the robots and the perfect one basically says, look, everyone we've experimented on is men. So maybe we'll be luckier with women. Because I think he mentions in this conversation, I may, might have skipped over it in my notes, but somewhere he does mention that. Because women produce life. They're the ones that babies grow in, that he thinks that they have some sort of special power within them, that he wants them to give him the life force that they contain within them. Yeah, because one of them has to give up their life for him. Right. But Barbara and Susan basically wake up and pretend to still be unconscious until they can spring up and attack the robots. And they basically get away in the confusion. Ian and the doctor are brought into an elevator, but then an alarm sounds and the elevator stops. They can't open the doors to get out, but the doctor thinks that the building must be running out of power and then the lights go out. So then they realize that, okay, that's what happened. But then when they look out, there's like a window. It's like one of those elevators that has like glass on the outside. So you can see the outside as you're rising and falling. 
they see that there's sort of like a light flashing out there. And the doctor remembers that next to the elevator on the building, when they were flying around, there was a ladder next to the elevator. So that, you know, like a maintenance thing or whatever. So they decide that what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to break out of the elevator and get over to the rungs and climb down. Okay. And then they sort of think, well, the perfect one was so insistent there wasn't a signal. So maybe now we're seeing this light and the power's out. Maybe it's because the signal only operates when the building doesn't have any power. I mean, it's not a bad hypothesis. Yep. And the doctor also then makes the connection that, wait, there was that one sash that was missing from the chairs. So maybe one person got away and they're the one sending the signal. And so then they do. They get out of the elevator. They climb down. Uh, They describe it in a little more detail, but I don't think that's really necessary. Susan and Barbara are looking for the TARDIS, but then the lights come back on and they hear the robots moving. They duck into a room, but then the perfect one and some of the derivatrons are already there. Mm -hmm. And he says that they've angered him. And so he orders them to be taken to the processing room. Then Ian and the doctor get to the ground and they notice that the signal isn't signaling anymore and that the power in the building is back on. They never do explain what caused this, this short power outage in the building either. But yeah, they, the doctor says that there's a cemetery out that he can see and there's like this pyramid in the center of it. And so he's like, okay, let's go there. So that's where they go because it's the only other building that they can see. There's a whole lot of what other choice do we have going on? In this right, right. Thing. Which, you know, to be fair, isn't that uncommon at this point in Doctor Who because a lot of their things are, well, we would like to leave, but we can't leave because the TARDIS is broken in some way or we're prevented from going. So we have to do this next thing that we don't really want to do, but then we're going to do it. So right. uh, it's just a different way of doing this. But yeah, so then that's the end of that episode. And now we're on to episode four, Taban of Luxor. So Ian and the doctor, they go to the cemetery, they go to the pyramid, they find a transmitter. And so they're like, okay, this is the transmitter sending the signal. Then there's this sarcophagus in the place. It's hermetically sealed. Right, that's hermetically sealed. And I'm thinking, you know, if I see a sarcophagus, maybe you don't open it? No, but Ian instead just whips out a Swiss army knife again and uses (laughs) it to break the seal. Mm -hmm. And he probably had his headlight out to see. Uh, You know he did. (laughs) That tiny little light. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why, because Ian's like, well, nobody could have survived this long. And I'm like, then why are you opening the sarcophagus if you think it's a dead body in there? Because that's not, you don't want that. Let's do a little bit of grave robbing while we're here. I don't know. <laughs> like nothing co- good ever comes out of opening up a sarcophagus, okay? No. <laughs> and the creature with glowing eyes comes out. Jaffa Cree. No. So... Ian takes away the seal by using his, his, his army knife or whatever. It's a Swiss army knife. Yeah, Swiss army knife. They, they're specific about pointing this out twice. In this oh, okay. I didn't write that part down. I was yes. just, yeah. But the doctor basically tells Ian that there are ways of keeping someone in suspended animation. And Ian's just like, basically, like, they open it up, they see a guy. And Ian's just like, wake up, you know, like his doctor's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like if somebody's in suspended animation, you don't just start like slapping them awake or anything. You got to let them. Because he does. <laughs> right. Shaking him, screaming at him. And I'm like, that's what you do. Like, yeah, I, true. It's what the Red Cross teaches you to do when somebody's unresponsive. Right. 
No, I get it. But yeah, it's like the doctor's like, you got to give him a few hours to actually like come out of this state. Ian's like, we don't have a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Ian is basically talking about he deserves it for what the Luxorites have done in the name of science. And the doctor's like, you know, your own people haven't done all that much better. You know, it's like a lot of humans have done some really awful things in the name of science. I'm sure that some of the doctor's own people have done some really awful things in the name of science. That's very true. And I don't even know. (laughs) But yeah, that's, I just thought that was one of those interesting exchanges between the two of them. But yeah, the guy does wake up. He does say. Friends. Yeah, he he does say that his name is Taban, that he was the head of the scientific masters of Luxor. And his voice is the, it's the same voice actor as all of the Mark Ones and everything. Mm-hmm. Because he created everything in his image because of his colossal ego. I'm about to say because of his massive ego. <laughs> right. And first off, he's concerned and wants to make sure that they are flesh and blood. Because he's terrified of this idea of what he's made. And uh, then he t- tells them that basically they should have just left him sleeping. Because it was basically his only way out. Because he's too afraid to die but he's horrified by what he made. And Ian's like, look, we have two women that are stuck in this building with what you've made and we need to get them out. So we need your help. And Taban's like, I don't care anything about you people. You should just, you two are lucky. You should just leave and go back from wherever you can. Yeah. Just write them off. You're not going to get them back. I'm not going to help you. Just. And then, yeah, like Taban is obviously in some kind of, uh, you know, either shock or something because he keeps talking and just going on and on about like all the things that he's done, like all the robots are his creation. They all came about because of all the experimentation he did on people. Like he's, there's clearly like a guilt thing going on and he realizes now that he's gone too far, but he continues to just talk and talk about all the horrible things that he's done. He almost seems still a little proud of what he achieved. Yeah, there, yeah no, I, I can see that also. But yeah, he says that he finally realized after he had made like the plans for the perfect one that he was basically creating a monster and that that's why he didn't go through with it. And that basically, though, when he found out the Derivatrons had just gone forward and made it anyway, that he ran before he even saw it because he just couldn't confront this thing. So he says that, yeah, I mean, you can ask me all you want to go back in and save these women, but I'm not going to do it. It's too much to ask. And the doctor says, hey, now this, this is just about them now. You kind of need to save yourself, you know, because you're now locked into this thing where you just want to sleep eternally, you know, and that's not a place where you can be either. Right. I mean, they, they don't go into that whole sentence, but it's basically the thought behind it is he needs to progress somehow. And so now Barbara and Susan are in the lab. They have the crowns on their heads. And the perfect one is seems very happy because apparently they've taken more of the energy or punishment from these chairs than any man ever has. Oh, it's basically they're being tortured. Yeah, they're being tortured. Like in some way, it, it's like energy passing through them and it hurts. But I thought it was interesting, though, that it's like they, they make a point of saying like the women can take more than the men could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then he wants them to rest up before he actually like tries to extract their lives. So he says, make sure they rested, make sure they've eaten. And then uh, so later, Barbara and Susan are talking about what they're scared, that they're scared about what's happening. But it's good that at least they're together. And so Barbara says, well, we can't just wait for you know, the doctor to show up. So we got to barricade the door. 
and Susan notices that there are cameras in the room because earlier they had seen the screens in the study that the perfect one was in. So, and she sees this orange looking gemmy, gemstone looking one moving and following Barbara's movements. Mm-hmm. So they knock out the camera, they move stuff over to block the door, and uh, then we come back to Tabon, who's basically showing the doctor and Ian that there's a way in from when the building was originally made that's just like a cave that goes underneath the building and then there's like a ladder way up into the old atomic armory where they stuck all the atomic weapons when they took them out from Luxor. And the doctor, he's like, oh, well, don't worry about anything. Devon says, don't worry about anything because they've all been deactivated. And the doctor's like, well, wait a minute. The perfect one said that there was going to be a really big explosion if he was hurt. Don't you think he could have reactivated them? And then Tabon realizes that, oh, that's really, really bad because, yeah, he could have done that. So we can't even get rid of him because if we do, we'll blow ourselves up. So the doctor asks, well, could we even disconnect it in some way to keep this from happening? And Tabon says, no, because basically if we disconnected it, it would still register as him being dead and it would blow us up. And so then again, he's like, hey, well, let's just leave because there's no way that we can win. <laughs> he is such a coward. Yeah, and the doctor's like, uh, well, you didn't kill yourself before. That was your chance, you know? So the doctor points out that since Devon didn't kill himself, but ran instead of killing himself, that the perfect one, since his mind is modeled after Tabon's, probably would do everything he can to kill himself, to not kill himself either. So, like, he's going to try to protect himself at all costs. So they ought to keep going with their plan. What other choice do they have? Right. (laughs) So then Barbara and Susan have finished barricading the door. They've also set up a tripwire and their thinking is, well, the robots will come through, they'll trip, they'll crash, and then they can run out the door. But unfortunately it's the perfect one that tells that comes in. And so he's questioning, like, why did they do this? Why did they mangle stuff? Why did they cause damage? You know, like, I don't understand why you would do this. And Susan basically eggs him into coming forward. And then he trips. And apparently just tripping and hitting his head on the ground is enough to cause. For the record, Barbara stopped. Barbara started. Barbara realized and remembered. And she was like, no, don't come any closer. Right. But yeah, he just trips and falls. Yeah, he trips and falls. He hits his head. And then Ian and the doctor and Taban have just gotten up to like where the self-destruct device is wired into the bombs. And they see the thing start going and it's getting into the danger levels. And it's like, oh no. And that's the cliffhanger for episode four. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then episode five is an infinity of surprises. And so basically the resolution to the cliffhanger is just the perfect one wakes up and then everything goes back to normal. So I'm glad that self-destruct, which was supposed to only be if he was damaged beyond repair, will also operate when he's just knocked unconscious. I mean, I would hate if your nap just took a few seconds too long and you blew up, even though you was perfectly fine, something you could just wake up from. But yeah, he basically has the other robots come in, clear away everything, put it back where it was. And he's like, look, I knew that this wasn't intended for me because you're smart enough not to kill yourselves. But the Doctor and Ian have gotten out of the building, so they're going to die because there's nothing outside. But that's fine because you two are here and you're the ones that are going to give me life. But Barbara and Susan, don't, isn't that when they start laughing and being excited because they found out that the Doctor and Ian got away? Mm-hmm. And they're excited about it. The perfect one can't understand that. Right. Like, why? 
yeah because then we're getting back to another trope in sci-fi of the robot not understanding the emotional responses of the people and finding that hard to process so once they realize that he's having a hard time with that barbara's basically starts capitalizing on that and saying more things that she knows are going to confuse him they like talking about how he's you know, doesn't understand any more than like an animal would understand. And that would he end up creating more perfect ones like himself slithering out of their test tubes. They talk about his clockwork brain and how he wants them to serve them like derivatron, like that serve him like their derivatrons. Don't they start singing nursery rhymes? And they start singing nursery rhymes. And I was like, okay, that would annoy me too. Because <laughs> he's getting annoyed. But yeah, also it is pretty annoying. And so this actually makes him worried that they're damaged somehow because they're just starting to act so irrationally. So he's like, all right, I need to conduct some more tests on you. But once Ian Taban and the doctor see that everything's gone back to normal with the self-destruct device, they decide to split up because Ian, of course, is very concerned about Barbara and wants to find Barbara. He's very back and forth on his concern for Barbara throughout the entire show. I don't know. He was slapping Taban awake because he wanted to go rescue Barbara. And he's like, this guy's better saver. Yeah, but I mean, there was the whole guillotine and the reign of terror thing. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. You're just going to bring that up every time that he didn't give you enough of a reaction. I'm going to bring up Marco Polo when he just ignored her and she just had to go wander off. That's the one I'm going to bring up. Okay, fair enough. I I do think you're a little harsh on him with the Reign of Terror one that it's like, okay, William Russell didn't bring the amount of like in that one scene, he didn't give the performance that you wanted, but come on. (laughs) He's got to make it up to me. Marco Polo is fair. Marco Polo is fair. That that was Ian being kind of a kind of a jerk. But Taban says, like, look, in my office, which is the office, the perfect one's taken over. Uh, there are, there, you know, you can basically see anywhere in the building because of all the cameras. And Ian's like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing those screens in there. So I'll go to the office and the doctor and Taban are going to go to like the power center to try to get power back into the TARDIS. And that will also divert the perfect one's attention from Ian, they're hoping. So that way it's sort of like a, a double thing that they can do. But the doctor's like happy, like he's like, like, ooh, we get to do something to create a diversion, you know. <laughs> I told you the doctor is one of the adventurous ones. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I know he he loves he loves showing how much smarter he is than people, even if it means smashing something with his cane and then talking about his his superior brain that was able to <laughs> dream up a way of breaking something in the Dalek City with his cane. <laughs> I still just think that's the funniest thing where he's just like, you see what I can do with some simple tools and my superior brain? I'm like, you just smashed something with a stick. I mean, that's like not, it's not superior brain. But anyway, Tabon sketches a map for Ian so he can get there and he says, take the stairs. And Ian's like, that's a great idea because the Mark Ones are really clunky and probably can't take the stairs very well. And also you can get trapped in an elevator. So that's the other. Yeah, especially when they knock the power out. <laughs> right. And so then Ian's like, all right, so I'll get Susan and Barbara. I'll take them to the TARDIS. And so that's their plan. So Susan and Barbara are basically, we just got to buy time at this point because there's nothing else that we can do. So they talk about how like the perfect one got so confused when they started acting irrationally. And so they're like, maybe it'll screw up the derivatrons too if we do the same kind of thing. So they sing a song and I had to look this up. It's called Land of Hope and Glory. It sounded like the alma mater of a school. It's actually like a British patriotic song. 
is what I found. It's basically like equivalent to like the Star Spangled Banner or something like that for us. I mean, it's not their national anthem, but it's like one of their patriotic songs, okay. you know. And yeah, it's like confusing the Rivertrons. They had no idea what's going on. And so they're just kind of like, uh, what do we do? And so it's basically pausing them from doing anything. But the perfect one sees all this in the office. And so he goes out. Is that when he slams his fist on some on the on the thing? He gets very he actually seems to get upset. Yeah, I think I, like, I think there is that sound effect at this there point. There is some uh, emotion going on there. Yeah, like the timing though is a little too perfect because apparently this is the same point when Ian's coming up to the office area. So he sees the perfect one leave and then he sneaks into the office. Oh, well, no, first, because there's a Mark one outside the office. He first has to trick it into going into the stairs. He runs behind it, pushes it, and it tumbles down the stairs and breaks. Oh, my God. But then he goes in. He sees that Susan and Barbara in the lab. So he goes out. Oh, no, he sees the perfect one also enter with a weapon. And then he goes out. And so the perfect one tells them to stop singing. They won't. So he activates the weapon, which is like some sort of paralyzation ray. So they can't move, but they can hear him. He actually seems at this point to be getting off on the fact that they're like, you must be afraid because you can't move. And he seems to be almost gleeful that he's causing them to be afraid. And so you sort of start to see this idea that even though he sees himself as this perfect creation and whatever, that he has all like the same problems that the Luxorites do, right? Like he's also this egomaniac. He also gets off on controlling people and all of that kind of stuff. And he's mad at the Derivatrons because they can't understand. Cause he's like, look, I've already figured out what's going on. You're being confusing just to be confusing and he's basically mocking the derivatrons for not being able to like, see that and so now that he realizes that they're not there's nothing actually wrong with them that they were just being clever he's like all right i'm gonna take your lives now but then ian enters the lab and is like don't touch them you can have me <laughs> oh my god ian and this is another one of those parts where i feel like it doesn't make a lot of sense because the perfect one has already said he doesn't think that men can give him the life that he right? wants so i don't understand why he goes to ian first other than because he doesn't let barbara and susan go so he's keeping them mm-hmm. other than he just wants to like get off on Ian's suffering which might be his motivation we never get that as far as like an explanation but it could be what's motivating him here But Ian makes a point of telling him that he can't call him Ian because only his friends get to call him Ian. So he can call him Chesterton. (laughs) I'm like, okay, like you want to insist on that. That's fine. But then, yeah, he also like makes an argument that human women are inferior. Like, I don't think this is really how Ian is like supposed to be thinking. I think that this is just a, he's trying to tell the perfect one that like, you just know Luxorites. Like, in humans, it's different. Like, women are inferior, and if you try to steal their energy, you'll you'll be inferior. You'll be weak. Right. But yeah, so that, that's basically his argument. Uh, but he's like, look, you can take me. I will give myself to you. And so basically, the perfect one just grabs Ian, puts him in a chair, and Ian's like, okay, let the women go now. And he's like, nope. I got all of you. Right. It's like, God, Ian, how could you not see this one coming? But then Ian brings up that he came here with Taban because the perfect one wants to know before he starts, how'd you mm-hmm. get here? And Ian's like, well, I came here with Taban. And the perfect one, like, no, Taban is dead. He has to be dead. There's no way he can't not be dead. 
it's been seven years. There's no way he could survive outside of this building for seven years. Like he's bringing up all these arguments, but he's clearly agitated by this idea that Taban would be alive. And so Ian, like Ian is just being flippant and is like, well, you're just a model of a man. So you don't know anything really about humans. But basically, like the perfect one is like, look, like Taban is the one who conceived of me. He is my father, my creator, my God. Of course, he would want to be with me because I am the perfect creation of his mind. And there's no way he would have left. Of course not. And so Susan points out, well, it's the Derivatrons that made you. And then he gets mad about that, that they're, that they're bringing that up. Because he, again, he's, he thinks that, yeah, the Derivatrons might have made me, but Savon wanted me to be made. But yeah, the perfect one tells Ian that since Ian's not telling the truth, he's going to put the power through Ian at a level that will cause him to feel a lot of pain. And Ian's like, that's torture. And only lower life forms use torture. And Taban's like, Taban is dead. There's no imperfection in me. You're going to start talking the truth now. Mm-hmm. So the perfect one starts talking about how Taban would love him like a father loves a son. And Ian says, no, actually, Taban hates you. And he ran away because you are the most shameful thing that he's ever done. So he starts torturing Ian until the lights start dimming. Ha ha. Yeah. And the Derivatrons tell the perfect one that there's a problem at the power center. And the Derivatrons, because Taban made them, know that Taban is there as well as the doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the perfect one says, bring Taban to me. Mm-hmm. And the power center, Taban is telling the doctor, okay, power should be going back to your ship now. And so now that I've helped you, you help me. He gives the doctor a knife and says, kill me. And <laughs> the doctor's like, no, I am not going to do that. And Bond's like, look, we can't stop the perfect one. But the doctor's like, look, we're living. We're, we're flesh and blood. We, we are capable of an infinity of surprises, which is where the episode gets its name from. Mm-hmm. So then the, the perfect one, knowing that Taban is going to be coming to him soon, tells Ian that he needs to take his life right now because he doesn't want to meet Taban until he is a living being. And so then he raises the power. Barbara says that he's killing him. And that is the cliffhanger. Crazy stuff, man. I told you, like, these episodes got really into horror. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's torture now. But also this sort of idea of, like, the, the again, it's like a Frankenstein thing. The idea right. of the creation wanting to be, wanting the master to approve of it, but it not being right at doing horrible things. There's sort of that element to it, which I, which I really like. And there's also almost uh, this whole idea of the scientists who create the thing, then regretting the thing. Also, again, remembering that we're not far from World War II. This is like the scientists who worked on the atomic bomb, Mm -hmm. right? That a lot of them had nightmares afterwards. They had all sorts of problems with the fact that they had made something that killed whole cities full of people. What was it Oppenheimer said? Was it now I am become death or something like that? Destroyer of worlds. Yeah. And so our final episode is called The Flower Blooms. That sounds a lot more hopeful, I think. (laughs) I have to say, up until the fifth episode, I really, really like this story. This last episode feels like it could have taken place in like five minutes, but we're going to drag that out to a whole episode. Yeah, this this one did drag, this part did drag a bit. Yeah. Susan's able to free herself from the straps. She pushes a derivative. I like this Susan. I like action hero Susan. She pushes, <laughs> she pushes a robot 
right? So a strong machine creature out of the way and turns the machine off. Then she goes over and gets Ian out of his straps. But he can't do anything yet because all of this has messed him up and he's basically too groggy to move. So then the perfect one comes up, drags Susan away. But by that point, Ian's able to get to his feet. But the perfect one's like, Ian, we know you're not going to attack me because we know what's going to happen if you do. And Ian, though, having to be Mr. Bravado, is like, you don't know what a man will do if he has to, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, the perfect one lets Susan go because he basically says that he can afford to be patient because there's nothing that they can do to him. And he tells Ian that the women are his weakness. And Ian's like, well, that's fine. Taban is your weakness. And Ian's basically like, look, I know that you're not going to allow yourself to be destroyed before you see Taban. And at that point, the Mark Ones come in with the Doctor and Taban. The Perfect One tells the Doctor to go to where Ian and the others are. But Taban's like, don't leave me. Like, like, he's terrified to be by himself with the Perfect One. And the Perfect One gets mad that the Doctor isn't leaving Taban. And he says, I have power over life and death here. And the Doctor's like, you just have power over death. Like... (laughs) Nothing that you do results in anything living. And then Taban comes over and kneels to the perfect one and basically says, let these people go and I will do anything you say. And this upsets the perfect one so much. Because you shouldn't be kneeling to me. Right. We're equals. Because he's thinking that this is some father-son relationship and this idea that Taban is terrified of him and bowing to him is just messing him up so he's basically like trying to grasp at straws again and basically saying you left because you're making new plans right like you didn't leave because of what you know you're afraid of me like ian said and taban won't agree with like he keeps trying to get taban to agree with him or say like like, what ian said was wrong but he's not saying anything Mm -hmm. then then what taban does eventually say is that if he could destroy the perfect one he would And then Barbara is basically like, you know, she's feeling sorry now for the perfect one. She says, if there was some way I could make you a living being, I would do that. And the perfect one now is also like terrified because of the idea of once the power that he's already grabbed is gone, he's going to become a statue. And he says, why did you make me if I'm just going to be a statue? And Devon says, I didn't make you. Right. Right. And again, so that's just like these blows to his self-image and everything that he's tried to build up. And again, because he's this idea that you can have someone who is exactly like a person, even down to emotions, who would become like a statue if they don't have power. It's terrifying. Like, to just imagine yourself in that situation. So you kind of get why he kind of goes crazy mm-hmm. at this thought. Then the perfect one says, fine, then kill me. But Taban's not going to do that because then that'll blow everybody up. And then he tries to convince him like, oh, I lied about the self-destruct because I didn't want anyone to harm me. But they realize that that's a lie because they already saw the thing in the basement. I'm going to call it the basement. (laughs) (laughs) The under area, the cave like system, whatever. Right. So the doctor tells Susan and Barbara, look, while this is going on, you guys get to the TARDIS. But he's going to stand and watch after Taban. And the perfect ones now is trying to tell the robot, this is your final order, like destroy me. And the robots don't want to do it either. 
because they know that killing him will destroy them too in their program to protect themselves. And so it's like, they're just moving around randomly, not doing anything specific. And the perfect one's like on the ground, just repeating over and over again that he does not serve. Yeah. And there's explosions going on and the doctor's trying to get Taban to leave, but he won't go. But then Ian knocks Taban out. <laughs> it's like, just imagine this like old man, like this old like scientist guy. And he's just like, bam. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't even been that long since he was woken up. Yeah. But they start dragging him away. But then one of the Mark ones, just because it's moving around randomly, just smashes the perfect one against the wall. And Ian's like, oh, no. And so then he runs in and grabs the perfect one also and tries to bring him away. So uh, once they get to the stairwell, they see that the perfect one, like the veins on his head are starting to glow, which they know means that the self-destruct is about to start. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to get the perfect one to keep moving because something about movement will keep the circuits in his brain going. So that this sort of it's this liquid metal in his brain that needs to stay a liquid because if it solidifies that's the thing that triggers the self-destruct. And so they're trying to keep him moving, but he won't move. He's basically staying limp. So everything starts crashing. And this is another thing I thought was convenient. It's like when you destroy the master of a place, the building itself starts to cave in. And I'm like, wait, the self-destruct hasn't happened yet. Why is the building just caving in? But they say it's because the building is connected to the perfect one's mind. And I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) just seems like we're trying to like ratchet up the danger and couldn't think of a better way to do it so then they're like we're just gonna have to drag him to the tardis so that's what they do barbara and susan get to the tardis but there's a mark one sort of stumbling around near it and so barbara is like okay i'll try to draw it away and susan you get in and so barbara does get it to move towards her but susan starts too soon where it's still close enough to the TARDIS that it's able to reach around and grab her when she tries to get in. Yeah. But then Ian and everybody rushes in and then it sees the perfect one and somehow in its mind, because he broadcast the order to destroy him, it's like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. So it goes, it grabs him, it throws him against the TARDIS so his skull splits open. That was crazy. I know, I'm like, oh my God, they totally would not have shown that on the show no again all in this horror vein (laughs) right and they even talk about there's like a black icker that's leaking out from his skull and so taban's like look this is it that's like the insulation in his skull that keeps the temperature he helps to keep the temperature the right temperature so that this stuff stays liquid so he's going to die very soon and it's going to blow up and so the doctor's like all right let's all get in the tardis and taban's like no i'm staying And the doctor's like, why? We can, like, bring you home. Which, of course, probably not. But, you know, he's trying to argue with this guy. Come on, you should live. But Taban's basically like, I'm done. I was too much of a coward for death before. And hopefully when this place blows up, they'll see it on Luxor. Because apparently it's going to be a big flash that envelops the whole planet. And he says they'll see it and they'll maybe learn a thing or two about what not to do. So the doctor realizes that Taban's serious about this. Uh, he says he's going to try to staunch the flow as much as possible while they get away, even though he doesn't think it's going to help too much. I think he has a lot more faith in his people than we give than, than we do because his people are a terrible people. And I'm sure they have his plans and they have all of his research and they're just going to do this again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't dispute that at all. But yeah, here comes the weird part, though. 
because I know that they did change a few things about the script, and I really wonder why they left this part in. The doctor says, as a farewell, God keep you. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah that bothered me a lot. And I'm like, that was really weird, because I get that when this was written, they didn't really have like a good backstory for the doctor, and it could have been anything. And so I get why a guy who's assuming just, oh, he's a generic Western European from the future. So, of course, he's Christian. Wouldn't it have made more sense, though, the doctor could have said, may your gods keep you or something like that? Yeah, I mean, probably that's what I'm saying. I don't know why Big Finish didn't change that line, because it's like, I get why in the 60s that might have seemed natural. But now it's like, why don't you just alter that line? There's a ton of different things you could have had the doctor say that would have fit. And I get that this was this story does have religious overtones because the transmigration chair is what the perfect one calls the chairs that he uses to absorb the life force stuff like that and so i get that there's some religious overtones already in the story but that was just a bit too much but yeah anyway it's a line and it's said and i don't get it it seems just as weird as susan asking if they've traveled to heaven in farewell great Macedon. it's just like what although the doctor's response to that is still great it's like how how could i ever know the way right So yeah, they get in the TARDIS, they're trying to leave, it doesn't quite have enough power, and it's like a thing of, oh, it's going to be down to the wire, can we get away in time? But at this point, the story is basically over. There's a lot of screaming that was very unnecessary. Right. (laughs) But they do, as they're dematerializing, finally, they look on the scanner and they see Taban cradling the perfect one, and the doctor says, well, in the end, they kind of both got what they wanted, redemption and a father. Oh, <laughs> I could have also left that line out. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, and then they then they leave. They see the bright flash that takes out everything and, and they're gone. And that is the end. Like, there's no dialogue afterward, no reflection on what happened. Nothing. It's just like, we're done. Uh, that I feel like definitely would have been changed if this one had actually been made, that they would have had some scene in the TARDIS right. at the end and commented on something but yeah i mean all we get is the redemption and a father thing i mean i I think it works better without any commentary (laughs) especially that line just nothing just cut to black yeah so yeah i mean this was the masters of luxor and so what did you think about our 60s skynet it was good i actually dug it for the most part it was very horror-y i i always love the the sci-fi exploration of creating machines to do our work for us, machines turning on us, do machines have souls? What, cre- what you know, marks a sentient being and makes it a se- an actual, you know, living creature? Mm-hmm. You know, what is life? All of that. Um, I always love exploring all of that in every sci-fi thing I watch, which is probably one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I love Battlestar Galactica, why Measure of a Man was a fantastic episode for me. But yes, I love exploring all of those things. Um, I actually wrote a paper in a, in college for a sci-fi fantasy lit class mm. that focused on, you know, can machines be alive? You know, can they can they do that? And I, I took reference from Terminator. I took reference from Blade Runner, from Star Trek. I hadn't seen Battlestar because it hadn't mm-hmm. come out. The new, the new version hadn't come out at that point. And... Um, Actually, I was very pleased with that. I referenced a lot of Carl Jung and uh, Joseph Campbell in it. So this was like right up my alley as much as the Reign of Terror was. Oh, good. No, I like that because I'm, I'm always concerned with these that I'm like, oh, my God. Because like, obviously 
there is the whole thing that he's preying on the women. And I was worried that that might have gotten a little too much like, oh, we're putting the women in danger specifically kind of thing. But at the same time, they were kind of also trying to go into the idea of how would a creature conceive of life and the idea that women do give birth and things like that. And I'm, I kind of see it like what there was they were going for. And I don't think it was specifically meant to be misogynistic. It was more of just the sort of philosophy of how does life happen and kind of stuff like that. And just a creature that actually has no idea how any of this works. Because that did bother me a little, but I was able to get past it for the rest of the story. I was able to feel like I really hate every being on Luxor. Yeah. I just, just the thought that goes into the creation of such things, how, how completely and utterly arrogant do you have to be Ah, just I love I love being exasperated at it. <laughs> so yeah, no, this was a great story. I th- I I would have liked to have seen this, especially with such a small cast, because you obviously wouldn't have had very many people. Right, which is why they were able to get away with just having one actor play all the parts. There actually is a fan made version of this. If you want to see somebody actually trying to perform this. I'm not sure I do. Okay, I'm just saying that it does exist on YouTube. I watched the first episode. I didn't watch the whole thing. I was just kind of curious. They did make it in black and white to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And because the actor they had to play the doctor was obviously younger than William Hartnell, they changed it to where Susan calls him uncle instead of grandfather. That's just weird. (laughs) But otherwise, it's, it's basically the script from the story. And it seemed fine to me. I mean, I, I get just as much out of listening to the big finish version because it's, you know, obviously not the same actors playing the roles. But I thought it was just kind of neat that some fans were like, this one never got made. Why don't we, you know, because again, I mean, it's not really that complicated set wise either. There's a lot of the things are just inside buildings. Uh, so mm-hmm. other than the Doctor and Ian on the surface very briefly, there's not a whole lot you have to do set wise. So it's pretty easy to, to do. But yeah, no, I mean, I... I also really love this one. I've sometimes talked about what would things have been like if this one had been made instead of the Daleks and how that might have changed the trajectory of the show. Because obviously the Daleks really impacted the show in a big way right away and kind of changed the way that they went with future stories and stuff. So it's one of those things where it's like, would it have become more of a philosophical show? Would it have not lasted as long because it became a little too highbrow? Like, who knows? you got to also remember the Daleks didn't just disappear. I mean, they, they weren't destroyed. In this, supposedly, all of these creatures, all of these robots were destroyed. So you wouldn't have had that ongoing thing like the Daleks. That's true. And what did you think about how the Doctor, Susan, Ian, and Barbara were portrayed in this? Pretty faithfully. Uh, did a pro- the right amount of screaming and yelling. So there was that. Ian was, again, uh, wavering between I must save Barbara and let's go explore. And the doctor was the doctor. Yeah, no. And Barbara, man, she her instincts are dead on. People really need to listen to her. Yeah. I mean, again, theme of the theme of the whole episode, the, all of these episodes was, you know, what choice do we have? Mm-hmm. But she was right. This place was not a good place it was very cold and medical and calculating and then she's the one at the end who who feels bad she's Mm -hmm. like if i could if i could make you you know give you the life give you what you want if there was a way to do it because she you know i know this perfect one just thinks that taking the life from just the right being will 
fix the one flaw that he has. And it's probably never would have happened ever because mm-hmm. that's just not how that works. Right. But I, I did feel like they were pretty true to the characters. Occasionally, it was a little hard to differentiate between Barbara and Susan talking. Mm-hmm. That was the only, that was the biggest thing I had for me. Yeah, it's one of those things just because the actors' voices are getting older. So like Susan, Carolyn Ford's trying to sound younger, but obviously right. it's harder for her to sound young like she did when she was Susan. So then her Barbara voice, which is closer to how she is now, sounds a lot more like her Susan voice just because it's hard to, to differentiate those performances. Like, you know, your vocal range decreases a lot as you get older and, your, mm-hmm. you know, your ability to do that. But I still like it. I still like her playing Barbara a lot oh, because yeah. I feel like there's a lot of affection in her performance. And I feel the same thing from William Russell's Doctor. I feel like he so respects William Hartnell that when he does that performance, he is giving it 110%. Like, he is really trying his best to give the lines the same way William Hartnell would, and I love it. Even though it's clearly not. He almost sounds more like William Hartnell than William Hartnell does sometimes. Right. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, I, oh God, I love those performances. But yeah, I found, um, because here's the interesting thing. I think the main thing, because, you know, we talked about how different the plot of this story is from the Daleks and how that might have impacted things. I think the biggest thing, though, is if you think about the way the characters related to each other at this point in the Daleks, this has them settled in to like a fairly good place right away. And I don't think we would have gotten the edge of destruction or something like that out of it, because the whole idea was. This is a progression. Like Terry Nation ran with the idea that these people don't trust each other in his second, you know, the second story that we actually got. And so then we get to the edge of destruction where it's like everything comes to a head where it's like these people really, really don't trust each other and they really need to to get out of the situation that they're in. And I think that that might have changed things quite a bit just because it seemed like the relationship, they were all in a fairly good place. I do feel like Barbara was a little harsh in this one. But then you brought out the fact that if we consider this as happening right after Farewell Great Macedon, that actually makes a lot more sense. So uh, I like that. I'm going to use that from now on. I do want to point out, she's not in a good headspace. And after this, she's really not going to be in a good headspace. Right. No, that's true. And actually, you'll see what we, so when we, we do our next story, which is a, you know an actual episode, I'm going to use that because a lot of people question something she does in the next one. And now that we're, we're talking about it in context of this stuff, yeah, it's not canon, quote unquote, but this actually, this actually works. Now I'm curious. And Susan, I like the fact that she's way more assertive in this than she tends to be in a lot of the stories. And yeah, she does do a little of the screaming, especially in the beginning when the robots come out. But come on, if you're in a dark, empty room and then suddenly doors start opening and everything... Tell me you're not going to be like, holy crap, and like just run out of that room. I was actually thinking more about her yelling at the end to get her, yelling at her grandfather to get them out of there. I was like, that's a bit unnecessary, but. Right, sure. But I'm, yeah, I'm just saying though that she she actually like is kind of like pretty assertive in this. And uh, I like that. And yeah, I think the doctor and Ian, I do like the banter between the two of them, but I don't feel like we got a whole lot from either one of them beyond like what we would normally expect from them. But yeah, I did think that Barbara and Susan were a little bit different than what we've come to expect. But, but like you say, there's some reason for it with Barbara. So I like that. And yeah, we talked a little bit about the performances, like anything like what What do you think of, I think the guy's name was John Dykstra who did the, the every robots. Every other voice. Yeah, every other voice. Yeah. 
I thought he did a good job. Actually, one of the things I've, I noticed was that every robot's voice was every make of robot's voice was slightly different. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you could hear the it was all sli- just like a you could hear it from the original. You know, what was his name? To Proto? No, uh, the person. Oh, Taban. Taban. You could hear his voice. If, once you heard his voice, suddenly you heard like every other voice. It was as if you had taken a photocopy of his and it got a little grainier, mm-hmm. you know, even though the Mark ones were the first ones and then the others, it was just like his voice was clearer with uh, the perfect one with, with Proto and all of that. So I like the way that he made them, even the robots voices ever so slightly different, just enough to be noticeable, at mm-hmm. least in my mind. Yeah, no, I thought that that was really good too. The Bond's obviously also aged up a little bit. The perfect one probably sounds just like the Bond did when he was younger. And then, yeah, like the sort of progression downward of taking that slightly different version for each level downwards, I thought was really good. And so, yeah, because at first I didn't realize until I saw on the back of the CD case where it says everyone else, John Dykstra, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, one guy did this. That's pretty cool because I didn't even think about it until afterwards. And now when I listen to it again, I'm thinking about that while I'm listening to it. And I'm like, this is a really good job of doing this. So that, yeah, on first pass, if you're not really paying attention to the voice vocal quality, it's like, yeah, wow, they got several different people in to do robots and stuff. If you're listening to this, I'm going to I'm going to compare it to uh, what's his name? D. Bradley Baker. Is it? That's right. Correct. The gentleman who does all of the voices of the clones in Star Wars, Clone Wars and Bad Batch, especially with Bad Batch, where you make each clone, you know, even in even in just between in the Clone Wars with Rex and Cody he can make them sound different enough that you're just like, huh. But every single one of them is voiced by the exact same actor. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to feel really bad if I don't look this up right now and make sure that I got his name right. Cause I'm gonna be like, well, crap. D Bradley Baker. Yes. Uh, so that's what I was thinking of. And maybe it's because I'm, u- I've been listening to that since um, some point last year is when we started the clone wars and just blew through everything that I actually started learning to pick out in the same show with two characters who are played by the same person or in the case of bad batch you've got like four or five of them played by the same person trying to all sound different talking to each other in one scene and so i kind of want to i kind of compare to that and that's what i'm used to listening to so when i was listening to each robot and noticing that they each sounded very similar like the same voice and that's when i started wondering you know whose voice pattern because it's it was obviously one person's voice pattern put into each one if any of that made sense i also had to look up to make sure i got the name right and i got it totally wrong john dykstra is someone completely different joseph kloska <laughs> <laughs> so there's still that cuff. Okay. <laughs> joseph kloska is the guy who did to bond the perfect one in the robots he did a great job he really did do a good job of putting the inflection into each one to make them sound different while still sounding the same yeah all right, so final thoughts. I liked it. I thought this was a fun one and I wasn't sure I was going to enjoy it as much because for some reason I just haven't been, and maybe it's because I like to actually watch something while mm. taking notes because if I'm just having to force myself to listen to it, I feel the need I need to be doing something else, which is why I listen to a lot of it while walking or running or cooking. Mm. <laughs> but this one, more than Farewell, Great Macedon and all of those really got me hooked into it. I love a good horror story. And like I said, this one ticked my my fun sci-fi trope boxes that I love to explore. And 
question and constantly think about because I'm never going to know the answers to these things. So it was great for that. And yeah, I mean, other than some a few parts dragging out slightly more than they needed to, I felt like it was still a, a very good, very good arc to listen to. And I would highly recommend it, even if it's technically not canon. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I would definitely say, listen to this one because it's fun, especially if you want to, I thought this would be really good to listen to in the dark, like just mm. chilling out in the dark at one night or something. You're just like, you know, don't want to watch anything. Just like turn on one light, light a couple candles and put this on. I bet you'd be freaked out because I'm sure I would be. <laughs> there are a few big finish stories where I, I cannot, like there was one I listened to while I was driving on the November evening when everything was pitch black outside that I'm like, oh my God, this is the wrong time to listen. Cause I'm in the car, I'm driving. It's just me. And it was terrifying. And I was just like, I no, <laughs> I can't, I'm going to have a jump scare and I'm going to go off the road because, <laughs> you know, it's something like that. So yeah, sometimes like, like they are, they are masters of sound sometimes and not just with just like this one, the plot line is very dark and it kind of lends itself to horror, but they're also sometimes good with just making it sound scary. And it's just like, oh my God. It was good. I also would love to find out one day, maybe if the description of the robots in here, the Mark ones played any sort of just as description in, in the design of what the Cybermen looked like, because I still swear that's exactly the, the image that came to my mind. No, I never thought of that. And that's really good. I, I like that. I'm going to guess that it just is happenstance just because it's completely different people working on the show at that point, but maybe something, maybe they saw a sketch and some, because I don't know how like the filing system worked or what notes were there or whatever. And maybe there was something, you know, somebody had sketched up something and somebody's like, that happens that in shows cool. and movie series all the time. No, no. I mean, I mean, certainly it's certainly possible. I wouldn't say that it's impossible, but yeah, for me, I feel like this is sort of like a philosophical slash somewhat psychological thriller. You mentioned horror and yeah, I mean, I get that too. And I think like it's just like a treat for like a hard sci-fi fan. I think that this would have been great. Like if there was some way we could have had both this and the Daleks, that would have been perfect. Yes. Because I feel like this sort of ticks the part in my brain that, you know, sometimes Star Trek gets into and Doctor Who, at least in these early days, it doesn't get as hard into the site. It's mostly just adventure type stuff. And so I kind of like that going also for the sort of philosophical angle. The quality of the audio is really good. Like, say, Joseph Klaska did a great job. I love William Russell doing The Doctor. I think that he is phenomenal. And like I say, I mean, even though I don't think Caroline Ford does her Susan as well as she used to, like you mentioned, I love her Barbara. Agree. This brings a smile to my face to, like, listen to these people. Like, like, almost 50, like, when they recorded this, it wasn't quite 50 years later, but almost 50 years later, doing their roles again and also doing their missing co-stars and showing them the respect that they feel like they deserved. And so that's great. And so, yeah, I only feel like that last episode is a letdown. And that's just because I feel like it was going really strong. And then just like that last episode just feels so padded. So I will guess I'll give mine because you didn't give your number yet, right? I so haven't yet. I'm going to give my number first. I usually have you go first, but I'll, I'll do mine this time. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. Okay. I'm going to take some points off of mine simply because of that last episode, some of the points that was the fact that for some reason and maybe it's just the nothing with the actors but the audio itself varied in volume so much that I would sometimes have to turn it up to listen to dialogue 
And then I'd have to turn it way down real fast because it got loud. Mm. And I wasn't so happy about that all the time. But that's nothing on, of course, the actors or anything. So I'm giving it a solid nine because I just really liked where we went with it. I love the question okay. that brought up and so on. <laughs> when you that. said you're taking points off, I thought you were going to go lower than me. But... No, I just take like a half a star off for each of those issues. <laughs> okay, nice. I, mean, I thought the acting was good. I thought that the the dude who played all the all of the other characters was fantastic. I liked the story, and you know, again, big sci-fi fan, so it ticked all of my fun boxes. Oh, great. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Like I say, I, I always, cause you know, I get so like, cause you know, I, I see what people post on forums and stuff. And sometimes I get into like, I see mostly people say one thing or the other. It's funny. This one does not get anywhere near the respect that farewell. Great Mastodon goes. Oh, this was so much better. Yeah. But I think it's so much better and you do too. So I'm really glad to hear that because usually it goes the other way when comparing just the, because it's the same people, right? It's the same Susan, Ian, Barbara, and the doctor. So it's easy to compare those. And yeah, usually people are like, oh, wow, Farewell Great Mastodon was so good. Masters of Luxor, eh. And I'm like, no, man, this one, this one's so good. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, flip it around entirely because this was so much better than Farewell Mm -hmm. Great Mastodon. I, I love it. Although I will say John Dorney's Alexander the Great is still amazing. And yeah, he is great. And the cool thing is not only is he a great vocal actor like that, he is a great writer too. He writes some of their best stuff at Big Finish. But anyway, so now we're going to go back to the TV show. (laughs) Awesome. Now that we've taken our little sidestep here. (laughs) So yeah, we're going to go into season two. I'm very excited. With a story called Planet of Giants okay yeah so we're gonna see them stretch their budget to its limits <laughs> oh gosh how many episodes is this are three that we're watching three yeah so it's pretty manageable that way it, it, we'll, we'll talk about why it's three and not four when we get to the episode but normally it's an even number of episodes and there's a reason for that why it's three instead of four we'll get into that when we talk about and it. no reconstructions on this one no we can know it's three existing episodes i'm looking forward to it yeah actually season two is the most complete season of 60s doctor who there is only one story that is missing two episodes and every other episode or every other story is complete in season two that's awesome yeah just i don't know why it worked out that way but it did (laughs) okay but all right so yeah this has been a lot of fun and looking forward to next time looking forward to getting back into the tv series yeah talking about some of the actual performances that we can see i'm digging it all right well this has been time streams i'm nathan and i'm juliet and we'll see you next time bye you've been listening to time streams a subsidiary of the 42 cast podcast if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. collect Doctor Who? Do you have Doctor Who items and don't know you collect Doctor Who? 
For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, join me for, for some fun in Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to Time Streams, a Direction Point Network podcast. Direction Point! Direction Point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network.